Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by Ben Badler to discuss the Blue Jays system. Ben, we always appreciate your insight coming on and joining us. The Blue Jays had a rough year this year. They went 67-95. and That was the franchise's worst winning percentage since 1995 in the abbreviated season. So the present was not good in terms of wins and losses. However, we did see the Blue Jays bring up a lot of talented players. We saw Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette come up and make a big impact. We also saw Kevin Biggio come up and do some good things. Danny Jansen took over as their everyday catcher. A lot of other players came up and made some contributions as well. Trent Thornton in the starting rotation. When you kind of assess where the Blue Jays are now, given the young players they brought up to the big leagues this year and looking at their farm system now, how far away is this team from contention? I would not expect anything in 2020. Uh, I would not expect contention then. They have, like you said, they, they have the, the the young nucleus of a lineup there. They have Vladdy Jr., they have Bo Bichette, Gurriel, Kevin Biggio is looking like he's, he's going to carve out a, a pretty solid major league career for himself. And on the pitching side, they need a lot of help. <laughs> uh, Nate Pearson might be their best starter. Uh, right now, like immediately in 2020, I don't necessarily expect them to be up on opening day, but they're going to need a lot more help around him because they're, they're pretty thin on the pitching side. So I think it's, it's probably going to be another under 500 or maybe 500 ish type year. Uh, in 2020, so 2021 is, is possible for contention, but uh, it could, you know, <laughs> if they don't make the right moves, it could be even a year beyond that. Yeah, you mentioned making moves. Marcus Stroman was traded at the deadline to the Mets for Simeon Woods Richardson and Anthony Kay, obviously ending a very, very storied tenure in Toronto. Aaron Sanchez, who the Blue Jays thought would be a stalwart in the rotation for a long time. Injuries really sidetracked him. He was traded this year as well to the Astros. And some of the young pitchers they had come up were guys that were previously highly touted or high draft picks. We saw Sean Reed Foley come up and make six starts. TJ Zoit came up and made three starts and five appearances overall. Anthony Kay did come up and make three appearances here at the end of the year. So there are young arms there, but as you mentioned, it's not exactly a slam dunk that any of these guys are going to be necessarily in the rotation in 2021, 2022, 2023. Again, Nate Pearson could be a front of the rotation guy. Maybe some of those guys fall at the back of the rotation, but they still need some meat in the middle is what it seems like, at least from the outside. Yeah, I, I think 
yeah, Nate, Nate Pearson's really the only guy from that group with a chance to be like a, a frontline impact type starter. The other guys, you know, you know, maybe if everything goes right, back end type starter, maybe relievers, but you know, guys that pretty much every organization has and. Uh, in, in their farm system or, or on their major league team, so they're they're going to need a, a lot more help, I think, in the on the pitching side. You know, we talked about end of an era. We'd be remiss without mentioning Kevin Pillar being traded to the Giants at the beginning of the year. You know, again, the Blue Jays, there was no expectation they would compete this year. Seeing them trade Kevin Pillar, seeing them trade Marcus Stroman, seeing them trade Aaron Sanchez, it did feel like this was kind of the last vestiges of, of the Blue Jays teams that were competitive uh, and made back-to-back ALCSs in 2015 and 16 kind of pack their bags and, and really kind of see the leaf turn over and, and the next era of Blue Jays baseball begin. Yeah, and probably, you know, something that probably could have been done a, a little bit earlier. Um, I think it probably would have expedited the the rebuild process to try to, you know, put a little bit more talent surrounding some of these these young hitters that they they have coming up. But obviously I think it was the, you know, <laughs> uh, probably overdoing it in some of those cases. But, uh, you know, certainly the right time. Uh, you know, it was certainly time to trade those guys uh, at this point when they did. Looking forward, you mentioned there's a lot of really, really talented young position players on this team. We talked about Guerrero and Bichette and Biggio all coming up this year. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. staying healthy and showing what he could do. Uh, Jansen coming up and taking over as the everyday catcher and being a Gold Glove finalist defensively, even though the bat wasn't as good as expected. Looking forward to the next wave, uh, we hit on a little bit the pitchers. Two of the top three players in this system are pitchers. Nate Pearson, the top prospect in the system, as well as one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. And Simeon Woods Richardson, one of the players they acquired from the Mets for Marcus Stroman, checked in at number three. We mentioned the Blue Jays really, really needing starting pitching help. What kind of starters can these guys be? Again, Nate Pearson's number one in the system. Is this a true number one potential starter? Because we all know how rare those guys are. I, I think he has that potential i mean we have to see a little bit more about the durability i mean the, the durability questions in his case are you know he had like a freak injury it's not like he had uh, you know tommy john or, or anything like that he got hit by a comebacker on his uh on, off the forearm uh in, in 2018 so he basically didn't pitch at all um that that season um so he had a really unusual workload this season where most of the year he's alternating between throwing five innings, two innings, five innings, <laughs> two innings. So it was a pretty unusual workload. Ended up throwing about a hundred innings total this year, but uh, he, he seems like a guy who should be able to hold innings. And, and if he does that, it's uh, you know the, the the stuff is is front front of the rotation kind of stuff. I mean, it's I mean close to a mid 100s fastball at, at, at you know at the very very high end uh, he sits sits upper 90s you don't you know a lot of guys will sit low to mid 90s who can you know even guys who can touch triple digits but he's pretty consistently even when he's going deeper into games is, is pretty much sitting in, in the upper 90s uh, it's it's late it's explosive life to go with the velocity uh, the slider took a pretty big step forward over the last uh, year, year plus. It's uh, you know sixty to, to seventy grades on on that pitch, and I don't think he's really needed to use the, the changeup a lot, even at the upper levels yet. But I think he's got 
uh, you know, feel for for that pitch too to you know to maybe be a 50 55 type weapon for him. So uh, you know, athletic. It's it's a pretty good delivery. Uh, it's pretty efficient for for such a big guy uh, being six foot six. Um, so yeah, I mean, you look at all the, the stuff, the track record of missing bats. He he throws strikes. I mean, all I really want to see at this point is him being able to, you know, handle that full season starter workload. And, and if he can do that, I, I think he has uh, all the attributes that, that you see in a, you know, a number one or, or a number two type of starter. Yeah, you mentioned the durability, and that was the biggest question with him. I think one of the most encouraging signs was at the end of the year, uh, his final couple starts at AA New Hampshire and the three starts he made at AAA Buffalo. He went at least five innings in his final eight starts. The Blue Jays kind of let him loose at the end of the year. Uh, we saw a couple six-inning starts in there. We saw a seven-shutout inning start in there in his AAA debut. So it did seem like he was building up, and you're right. For so much of the year, it was those five innings, two innings, five innings, two innings, and you never really know until someone does it how are they going to respond to having to go you know, five, six, seven, sometimes even pitch into the eighth inning every five days. Um, but he showed a little bit of sign there at the end of the year that he was able to do it again small sample we're talking about uh, about a month of doing it but just the fact he hadn't done it before i feel like you feel a little more confident now about it than you did maybe at the all-star break yeah yeah it was good to see the you know the 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 reins taken off a, a little bit there at the end so we could start start to see how his stuff plays deeper into games when he's doing it um you know on a on a weekly basis so it's yeah it's one of those things where I, I i think he can do it it's just you know we've never seen him do it before and and sometimes guys you know what when they do get to that 125 130 plus inning mark uh sometimes you know you, you start to see guys have have issues there i don't see any reason why that would be the case with him it's it's just uh you know look well, he's He's either the best pitching prospect in baseball or, or at least one of the top two or, or three uh, pitching prospects in the game. So uh, it's, it's almost nitpicking a little bit. It's a, it's a really high upside. It's just uh, it's kind of like the last step that you want to uh, see from, from him. And it, it's something we're probably not going to see until he actually gets the big lead, which will probably be very, very early in, in 2020. And then Simeon Wood Richardson, who is the number three prospect in the system, what did he show the Blue Jays quickly? Because, again, he only came over at the trade deadline, a little over a month left in the minor league season, but he already made his way up to high Class A. He was 18. There were good reports on him when he was still with the Mets, pitching at low Class A Columbia. What did the Blue Jays see in him that, A, made them want to acquire him in the first place, and, B, that they felt that he's already one of the top three prospects in their system? He, I mean, what 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 I like about Woods Richardson, I mean, it's a combination of uh, youth. I mean, he played all season at 18 years old, and he just turned 19 in September after the season. So he's super young for you know for being a 2018 draft pick. You could probably put him into the 2019 draft. Almost those are almost. <laughs> Uh, those guys are almost more his peers, um, and and for him to be that young but still have a, a combination of stuff and polish. I mean, you you would not think he was 18 years old. The feel for pitching is way 
way beyond his years. He's, uh, you know, he's strong. He's athletic. He throws a ton of strikes. Uh, you can see the, the the strikeouts of walk numbers on him. You know, even even before the trade, the numbers were better after the trade. Um, even you know, moving up a level to uh, uh, to the Florida State League, but he's you know consistently had very strong strikeout to walk numbers because he's he's his feel for pitching is so good and his stuff is is good too. It's not Nick Pearson good, but it's you know low to mid nineties fastball. Uh, I think they're you know he's relatively filled out, but just you know with his with his age and, and, and some of the things in there, I think there might be a little more velocity still to, to squeeze out of there. But, you know, even if not, it's, it's already, you know, low to mid nineties fastball. Um, it's one of those, you know, high spin hoppy fastballs gets good extension too. So the fastball plays up even more than the, the radar gun suggests. Uh, and he's able to get swing and miss there. Uh, you know, slider, curveball. I think the, uh, the the changeup's still a, a little bit behind right now, but I, I think that's got a chance to be an average pitch. So it's a guy who's got a chance for four, you know, average to to plus pitches across the board, who throws a ton of strikes uh, and you know and and misses bats. So uh, you know, this is the kind of guy where I wouldn't be surprised if you know by the time he's twenty twenty one. Uh, he's he's going to be up in up in Toronto already at that point. We talked about the Blue Jays' need for front to mid rotation starters. Is there number two starter upside here? I think if you know if, if everything goes right, yeah. Uh, you know, it's sometimes you know even when, even at that age when when they're still eighteen, it's it's almost tough to say like what's the what is like the true ceiling or, or upside for. Uh, for a pitcher, but I, I think it's it's certainly you, you can see without having to project a ton uh, a path to him becoming a, a mid rotation starter, and, and I think there's probably enough upside in there for for him to potentially develop into uh, a number two if, if everything uh, goes right for him. The Blue Jays have a number of pitchers in their system. Uh, we talked about some of the guys they've used high draft picks on in recent years. They went to the pitching well again with their first round pick this year and Alec Manoa. You have him penciled into the projected 2023 lineup as the Blue Jays number three starter by then. Again, another guy who the Blue Jays really do need to kind of click and have everything come together if they really are going to be contenders within the next three, four, five years. What is it about Manoa that gives you and the Blue Jays faith that he could settle in and become that number three starter they're going to need? Yeah, and and two fifty might be uh, generous. <laughs> might be on the the lighter end too. I mean, the Blue Jays have been taking, you know, whether it's Pearson or Manoa or uh, Adam Klopfenstein, Kendall Williams, they've been. Uh, you know, on the other end, I guess you've got Eric Pardino, but for the most part, uh, especially out of the draft, they've been piling up these uh, extra, extra large, uh, beefy right-handed pitchers into the system. Um, and yeah, I mean, Manoa is probably the biggest of of that group physically. It's six six two sixty is the official uh, the official measurement. Yeah, I mean, it's six six, maybe you know, tickling six seven, and yeah, the weight is uh, yeah. E- either way, he's <laughs> He's he's a big guy. It's big stuff. I mean, it's you know fastball sitting usually about ninety three to ninety five, ninety six. He can run it up to 
98 when he needs to. The, the slider when it's on uh, is another uh, pitch for him that's that's a plus pitch. Um, I, I think he's shown some feel for, for the changeup, and he's probably, I think, a better athlete than, than maybe he, he gets credit for. I, I think that's, you know, we see these really big guys. Sometimes if, if they're not great athletes, it you know, it, it takes them either a while or, or they never end up <laughs> figuring it out, being able to, to sync everything up in, in their delivery. But when you can see he, he went out and, you know, not a, not a big sample and it's, it's just the Northwest League, but he went out and, and he threw strikes. Uh, I, and I think his, you know, he has a delivery that's conducive to him being able to, to a starter. His, his control has, has improved uh, over the past couple of years. So, I, I think those are kind of uh, kind of arrows that are, are pointing in, in the right direction for him. Uh, you know, further further away, even though he's older than uh, you know it was Richardson, but uh, you know just because he, he he was just drafted this year. But uh, somebody who I think you know probably could uh, you know I, I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up finishing the season in Double A. I mean that would be aggressive for him, but. Uh, yeah, a, a guy who's got a you know a, a big big power arm, and uh, another guy I think, yeah, an important guy for them who has a you know a chance to be a, you know a mid rotation type of uh, type of arm for them. We saw Nate Pearson climb into the top ten prospects in all of baseball. Jordan Groshans was moving his way into the top fifty. I missed most of the year with a leg injury. Simeon Woods Richardson as someone that people have talked about as being a potential top 100 prospect, whether it's this year or in future years. Uh, it seems like the top three, that's really the clear-cut top tier. Uh, and then we move into that international group with Alec Manoa in there. Is that an accurate assessment, those top three, there's kind of a clear separation, and then the rest, it's a little more mixed? Or was it even clear, you know, who's four, five, six, and seven? Uh, I think I think it was definitely, a for me, it was a Clear top two, uh, you know Pearson. I think was was an obvious number one. Uh, Jordan Groshans. I, I think it's uh, it was so disappointing that he, he barely got to play beyond you know April and uh, maybe I think a little bit of May even. Uh, but he you know he, he missed you know almost all year. But everything when he was healthy from you know going back to last year in, in the Gulf Coast League to early this year and. In the Midwest League, which is not an easy place to uh, to hit, uh, you know, especially for a high school kid from from Texas going into that uh, cold weather environment. I mean, he, he went in and just lit it up immediately. Just got such good reviews from scouts. So I'm uh, just a huge fan of, of Jordan Groshans. And then, you know, obviously I went with uh, Woods Richardson at three, but uh, you know, you could probably. I mean, the I have the biggest, pol- the most polarizing guy probably in the in the organization is is Alejandro Kirk. Uh, you know, we went with Kirk at at four. Uh, you know, I, I you you can find people who would have him uh, even higher. I think up on the Blue Jays list, and you can find people who would have him uh, significantly lower too. Um, he's just such an unusual guy. Uh, you know, we, we talked about uh, you know big beefy players <laughs> in the Blue Jays system on on the pitching side, and Kirk is uh, he doesn't have the you know certainly the height. He's about five foot nine, but 
Uh, he probably has the weight of, of some of those other uh, pitchers we were talking about. So it's it's you know it's not a good body. He, he needs to get into better shape. But I, I think there's some people who just can't get beyond the body and and write him off because of that. But I, I think he's a really really good hitter. He, he has a lot of uh, tools and, and, and a lot of attributes that a lot of really good hitters have. It's uh, it's a really tight, short swing. He's got good bat speed. He, he tracks the ball really well, you know, which helps him make later decisions on uh, you know when to swing to you know when he can let the ball travel deeper into the the hitting zone. And, and his bat is is in the hitting zone for for a long time. Uh, and, and he has really, really good hand-eye coordination and just a good eye for uh, for the strike zone in general, a guy who, you know, walked more than, than he struck out and, and has been pushed pretty aggressively through through the system, too, and, and everywhere he's gone, he's, he's consistently hit well and, and gotten on base at, at a high rate. So, um, you know, I, I think that's probably, yeah, the point in the system where, you could probably go, uh, uh, you know, different ways depending on what it is that that, uh, that you're looking for in uh, in a player at that point. Yeah, you mentioned Kirk being divisive, but obviously a lot of faith did exist among the scouting community to place him so high up, uh, especially in, in his ability to hit. Manoa, we've talked about being a first-rounder with mid-rotation potential. Anthony Kay and, and Adam Klofenstein are two pitchers that kind of round out the top 10, or I shouldn't say kind of. They are two pitchers who round out the top 10. Uh, you also have them projected, or at least you have Anthony Kay projected in the future rotation with Klofenstein, potentially a guy that can force his way in there at some point. Was this the clear top 10, or were there some guys beyond this group that you felt have an argument and came close? Yeah, I think yeah, you know, with the, you know, in Kay's case, I think he he's not like a safe back end starter, but like there, there's not a lot of you know room for him to go to get to that. I mean, you're talking about a guy who's probably going to you know pitch right away in the back of their rotation. Uh, you know, in in 2020, uh, you know, he's, he's going to need a little bit more to, to stick in that role in terms of development. But, uh, you know, a lot lower risk than, you know, somebody like Klaffenstein or, you know, somebody who, you know, who dropped out of the top 10 this year, like Eric Pardino, where, you know, in Pardino's case, there's a lot to like about him from, you know, from what you saw in 2018. But, from you know 2019 he was hurt and then he came back this year uh and when he did come back the stuff was down so you know maybe he just you know he just was never 100 percent all year and the stuff comes back in 2020 and he, he moves way up the list again but uh definitely some more red flags there with the uh with pardino but uh yeah i mean you know cloth and steen it's i, I think it's certainly further away and, and you're hoping that there's you know more projection that ends up coming through on his stuff because it's you know it's it's solid stuff but it's not like there's a there's a wipeout pitch in there right now he does 
show good feel for for spinning the ball, for spinning his breaking pitches. Um, you, you hope that the stuff ticks up a little bit more in in his case. But there's you know there's some other interesting guys um, kind of in that next tier of, of guys. I mean, Otto Lopez is a, a really interesting guy to me, a guy who won the, the batting title in the Midwest League, and I think there's, you know, not a ton of tools with him. Um, I, don't, I don't think he's going to, like, wow anybody if you see him in, like, a workout, but I think there's some more untapped power potential in there if, and it's kind of a big if, he's able to make an adjustment with his Kind of, kind of with his swing, but almost more of the, the approach. I mean, his his approach is really just geared to trying to, you know, put the ball in, in play. Whereas if I think he, if he kind of made an adjustment with his approach to look to drive more pitches for damage and really uh, go for more extra base hit type power, even if it led to a little bit more swing and miss, uh, because you know his hand eye coordination is so good. I don't think he's ever going to be a high strikeout guy, but I think there's some more. Uh, power upside there. Uh, you know, you, you've got guys like Griffin Conine, who uh, enormous. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, probably 70 raw power. That the guy missed 50 games with, with a suspension and, and still led the Midwest League in in home runs. I think he led the league in slugging by like 100 points or so. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty big power, but it's also pretty big uh, strikeouts too. Uh, you know, you, you've got some pretty interesting, uh, uh, you know, guys they added to the, the system this year through the draft and through uh, international free agency. Uh, Kendall Williams, a right-handed pitcher, uh, a couple shortstops, and uh, Steven Machado out of Venezuela, Kelvin Castro from the Dominican Republic, and, and Leonardo Jimenez, who's already in the system too, uh, a signing out of Panama, who's in the Appalachian League. Uh, this year where you're, you know, a lot of good action, but you're just kind of waiting slash hoping maybe on on strength coming around with him. So there's a, I mean, you know, right in that kind of, you know, 9 to, I don't know, 15, 17, 18 almost range, uh, there's a pretty interesting mix of guys there, which uh, I think speaks well to the, to the depth of the system for, for an organization that just, graduated Vladdy Jr. and Bo Bichette. I mean, two top 10 prospects and Biggio and, and Guriel. So, you know, for, for a, an organization that just graduated some, uh, some pretty serious dudes, there's uh, still some pretty good depth in, in the organization too. I think it's important to note too, the Blue Jays, we're not talking about a small market team here. Uh, Toronto's a major market. We saw only a few years ago, they were drawing 3 million-plus fans. This year, attendance dropped to its lowest mark since 2010. And we've talked about it was the worst record since 1995. So while there is the promise of better days ahead, uh, even though Blue Jays fans have been accustomed to long playoff droughts, they uh, famously did not make the postseason between their 1993 World Series and their 2015 American League Championship Series appearance. Uh, it does feel like this is not a market that's going to sit back and wait and say, oh, another 10 years of, you know, mediocrity is is going to be acceptable i mean this is a franchise we've seen when they're competitive the fans show out with the best in baseball and are among the loudest and most excited in baseball given we've already established unless the blue jays decide to make a number of win now moves this offseason they're not going to compete in 2020 
Odds are they're not going to compete in 2021 either just because we see pitchers' development takes a while even after they get to the majors. It does feel like 2022 is the earliest any sort of contention is realistic. Do you see a way for the Blue Jays to accelerate that timeline at all without necessarily harming the long-term viability of the club? Or is this something that if they really do want to contend for the long term, they're going to have to wait it out for another you know, two, three, maybe even four years? And I, I think 2021 is is possible for uh, for them to cut back to contention. I mean, you you have without any major free agent signings. That that seems optimistic given the state of the current rotation. Oh, yeah. Oh no. Certainly. Oh, without you know, if they're not going to spend money to, to sign free agents, I, I think that would be difficult. Yeah. I mean, I think they're going to have to sign. Uh, you know, especially on the on the pitching side. Uh, you know, some 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 more players to, uh, you know, to to put around Nate Pearson and, and look. I mean, Nate Pearson is not a lock either. I mean, you know, nobody really uh, is, especially on on the pitching side. But uh, yeah, they're going to have to sign major league free agents. I think, especially in that uh, starting rotation. And you know, look, they they also have players who. Uh, you know, it come you know 2021 or going into the 2021 season, where uh, you know if if they wanted to trade players, they they certainly have the prospects to do it. They're you know picking, I believe it's fifth overall in the draft this year. I mean, they should have uh, even more prospects that they're going to add to uh, to to the farm system uh, before then. So. Uh, you know, I, I think if, if they, you know, if, if they, you know, supplement that core lineup that they have and, and build around uh, Vladdy and, and Bo, and then you've got Biggio and, and Gurriel as well. And, uh, you know, I, I think probably there's some more, there, I, I think there's, there's some more upside there too with uh, Jansen than at least offensively than, than what he showed in 2019. I, I think the, you know, there's some core pieces of the lineup there and, uh, you know, you, you might have a couple of perennial all stars um, in in Vlad and, and Bo, so you, you have the pieces to build around. But yeah, it's it's going to come down to making the right, whether it's free and signings or uh, or or trading the, the the right or making the right trades. Uh, it's there's certainly the potential for them to contend in in 2021. But uh, you know, like you were saying, they're going to have to make the right moves for them just to get back there. It's not like the AL East is, is full of uh, uh, soft spots other than uh, Baltimore. So it's, uh, it's not easy. It will be a difficult road back to contention, and we'll see if the Blue Jays can pull it off with some of the prospects coming up the system and whatever free agent signings they make. Uh, GM Ross Adkins has already said this offseason he intends to be aggressive on the pitching front, so we'll see how that turns out. Ben, thank you so much for joining us to break down the Blue Jays' farm system. We appreciate your insight as always. Once again, that was Ben Badler here to break down the Blue Jays system for us. We always appreciate his insight. We actually have a very special treat for all you listeners out there. We have an interview with Nate Pearson, the Toronto Blue Jays' number one prospect. Uh, Nate's been through a really interesting rise to top prospect status. He was a reliever as a freshman at Florida International, transferred to junior college, turned himself into a starter and one of the top prospects in the nation, was drafted, uh, missed all of 2018 after a freak injury, came back in 2019, rose all the way to AAA. So it's been kind of a 
whirlwind rise for Nate, and he was kind enough to join us. Nate, first and foremost, when you see that you are named the number one prospect in the Toronto Blue Jays system by Baseball America, what does that feel like, and, and how much attention do you pay to that? Um, I don't really pay that much attention to it. I just try to control what I can control and uh, just continue to have some success in the minor leagues and uh, uh, eventually reach my goal of being a big leaguer. At the same time, I know a lot of other people uh, definitely pay attention. When that something like that happens, do you get a lot of texts, a lot of phone calls? What's that like? Yeah, a few people reach out to me whenever you guys uh, bring out a new list or if I if I rise up in the, the rankings or whatever. You know, my dad's always following it. He's really big into it. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, he'll always text me and say, hey, congrats, you're moving up. Or my, my buddies from back home, well, they're always following it. So, uh, yeah, I do get a few friends and family reach out to me. You began your college career at Florida International, uh, mostly pitched out of the bullpen, and then made your way over to Junior College of Central Florida. You were in the bullpen in the fall, eventually moved into a starting role that spring, made yourself into a first-round pick. You were selected 28th overall by the Blue Jays uh, after that season at JC of Central Florida. What changed for you there, and how did you grow as a pitcher that became a first-round pick? Uh, I just learned how to get deeper into into games, uh, because until then, I since high school I haven't really been deep into games until uh, my junior college season so just getting into the 7th and 8th inning knowing what that feels like and just uh, learning how to pitch better you know not relying just on the fastball being able to throw my off-street pitches and uh, learning how to sequence my pitches better and uh, obviously I wasn't facing the, the best uh, college um competition like you I would be on like an SEC school but you know I was able to still work on what I was what I went to junior college for and that's just to get be a better pitcher and uh see uh how successful I can be in the draft one of the biggest strides you made was with your command uh you've always been a big guy who threw hard you mentioned pitching deeper into games really learning how to pitch but your command specifically was cited by scouts as what helped you vault into first round consideration as opposed to being just another guy who threw hard how did that grow throughout that year and and where would you say you started from to where you ended at Uh, i'd like to say ever since uh high school i've always been able to fill up the strike zone with uh not necessarily accuracy, but with command. Like, I've never been, like, crazy wild and walking a bunch of people. Uh, I'll lose feel here and there, but, like, for the most part, I'll be around the zone and uh, be able to attack hitters. And uh, I think that definitely took a step forward when I became a starter uh, my sophomore year. And uh, I really just learned that I have to be able to go deep into games. And in order to do that, I have to limit my pitch count. And uh, so I so I'm able to do that. So uh, I learned just try to get – uh, batters out three pitches or less uh, void walks um, and just fill up the strike zone really throughout that spring your name kept coming up a little bit coming up a little bit when did you get a sense that you had a chance to go in the first round uh, definitely after uh, my bullpen session in front of all those scouts in Lakeland where uh, that kind of just solidified me at the end of the first round so I knew I, I had a shot of being a first rounder after that what was the process like with the Blue Jays? Did they have a lot of contact with you before the draft? Was it mostly after the draft? How did that process unfold with them? Uh, well, I got to know the the Blue Jays area scout at the time. He was the first scout to ever talk to me in high school, Matt Bischoff. Uh, he was the first professional scout I talked to in high school, and he, was, he loved me then. And uh, Obviously, I didn't get drafted out of high school, but he followed me through uh, 
my two years in college, and I ended up back in his area at College Central Florida. So we just picked up where he left off, and he, uh, he came to the house, and we sat down. He said how much they were really interested in me. Uh, obviously, didn't say first round contention at the time, but uh, they just knew, I just knew the Jays liked me. And then towards the towards the draft came around, they had me out at the, at the complex here in Dunedin and showed me around and everything. So I kind of got the feeling that they really liked uh, really liked me and what they saw. So it was. Um, I knew it was close to home, so I was hoping uh, that would be the case, and uh, end up happening in, uh, in June. And I'm uh, very thankful and blessed. Uh, throughout your time in college, uh, you sat 93, 94, touched 97, 98. Obviously, threw plenty hard, but once you went out to Vancouver after that draft year, almost immediately there was a little bit of a velo bump. Uh, some scouts were starting to see some mid to upper 90s, touching 101 in short bursts. Uh, you carried it through into the next season, uh, even though it was limited by injury. You showed it in the fall league, and really into this season, you've really maintained it. What do you kind of credit the velocity bump to over the last couple of years? Uh, just my training regimen and uh, my nutrition. I cleaned up my diet. Uh, definitely dropped uh, some weight when I was carrying uh, in junior college, and when I got into pro ball, I learned a. Uh, that the, the seasons are long and I need to get to more athletic uh, build that I am right now. And uh, also the, the driveline stuff I do helps with my, my arm care and uh, just maintaining uh, my healthy arm. So uh, that's definitely a key factor too. You mentioned uh, getting your body in shape. What did you weigh at your heaviest and where are you at now? Uh, at my heaviest, I think right when I got to Vancouver, I was about 270 uh, and now about 250. So I definitely lost about 20 pounds, and I think 250 is around the mark where I need to stay at. That's where I was at most of this uh, this season, and um, I'm even trimming some of the fat still, just getting to more athletic body and just being lighter and quicker on the mound. Yeah, I think a lot of times people think if you move from the bullpen to the rotation, your velocity is going to tick down. They assume you go rotation of bullpen it ticks up, and that is normally what happens. You kind of went the opposite way. You were in the bullpen, moved to a starter. And you threw harder. How did that kind of transpire? Uh, I'd say I've always had a starter's mindset. Even when I was coming out of the pen, I've always, even though I knew I was only going one or two innings, I kind of envisioned myself going uh, at least six. And that kind of stemmed in high school. Ever since, even in high school, when I'd get to the fourth, third or fourth, that's my view that would start getting uh, stronger. And I'd uh, usually top out uh, my high zero usually in the later innings. And that was the case this year where I'd warm up, I'd probably sit around like uh, 96, 97, and then the 5th and 6th inning came around, or 4th, 5th, and 6th, and I'd be hitting into the 101, 102 range. And so uh, that's just how I've been all uh, my whole career, really. It's just really a mindset that I I finished strong, and, uh, you know, because you're you're starting to face hitters third time through the lineup, and when they see that I'm just getting more powerful, you know, it kind of warns them, and, you know, they they get a little bit more, uh, they think they have me figured out, but then, they, then I get more stronger and it's a little harder for them. Yeah, a lot of times people talk about getting stronger, staying strong late in games, and it's kind of a goal a lot of people strive for, but they're not always able to achieve. It seems like you're one of the few guys who's able to, to actually do it. What do you kind of credit that to? Yeah, you know, you, uh, I just credit to my work ethic and uh, my stuff I do off the mound, you know, with my my training and my nutrition, you know, that's the whole mindset when I'm training this off season. Like when I'm working out, I'm, I'm envisioning 
during this season in the seventh inning when I got bases loaded and a two outs and a three two count. Like I'm gonna give my best pitch. Now you know that's what that's what I train for. It's what I uh, live for. Essentially, you know, just for those moments and just make sure I'm prepared and visualizing that moment. During the 2018 season, uh, you had a back injury that prevented you from pitching the first month of the season. You only got in for an inning and two thirds before taking a line drive off your right forearm, uh, ended your season. How difficult was that for you, knowing it should have been your first full season and you got to throw an inning and two thirds? You know, it was, uh, it was a tough pill to swallow because, you know, especially looking at this year, how quickly I was able to move, you know, it makes you think that if I was healthy all last year, where I'd be at right now. But, um, you know, uh, God has a plan, and uh, I just trust in that. And I had a really good support system when uh, when it happened, and you know, I was able to just deal with it and just show up every day, just keep working hard, and just envision for a healthy 2019. And that's exactly what happened. You came back for the Arizona Fall League, famously uh, touched 104 there, uh, had you know some pretty dominant radar gun readings. I remember actually covering one of your games there, one of your last ones, and. Uh, while you'd been lining up the radar gun, you and I had talked about, you know, getting command of your second st- secondary stuff, getting your feel back. That was still coming along at the time your ERA in the fall league was over 10. When did you feel like that stuff really started to click back for you and you were back to being kind of in peak form? Definitely after the, the fall starts game out there, uh, I kind of envision looking back on it now, like the first three starts I had in the fall league, that was basically like my spring training because I came – as soon as I was healthy and on the mound, I got a couple instructs starts, and then I was I just shipped right out there. So looking back on it now, like I didn't really have that much uh, time to face hitters. I mean, I was fully healthy and ready to go. Like I was arm wise, I was ready to go. But you know, as the season goes on, you learn a little bit more and uh, you get more experience, you get more comfortable with pitches. That's why we have spring training, you know. So that was basically my spring training, the first uh, three starts there, and after the fall starts game is when I really hit my stride. And it was pretty evident my last uh, few starts there. But, uh, yeah, I definitely got more comfortable and more confident in my off-speed pitches, and it definitely helped out. You come out this year, full year ahead of you. You start at high Class A Dunedin, six starts. They bump you up to double A, uh, spent a lot of the season there. And then in August, they bump you up to triple A, uh, spent time at three levels. Now you're on the verge of the majors. What was this season like for you, and what do you attribute it to? Uh, I definitely attribute it to my work ethic and uh, showing up to the field every day and with the mindset of working on something. You know, I, didn't, I don't take a day off. You know, I'm making sure I'm getting better each day. And it really attributes to the, the pitching coaches I had along the way. Each each pitching coach taught me something that I never even thought of before, being in Dunedin and then Double uh, uh, A with uh, Coach uh, Vince Horseman helped me out with my curveball and then uh, got up to Triple A and helped. And uh, Doug Mathis helped me with my uh, my slider and curveball command, and also with my changeup. So I was only there for three starts, but I was kind of got me pumped up for next year and in spring training when I get to work with all those guys again. Did you come into the year thinking Triple A was a possibility, or was Double A the goal? I mean, it was before the season even started. I knew I was probably going to start in high just because, but uh, I knew my goal was to end up in Triple A, and I just wanted to get as much momentum as I can. I had a lot coming from the fall league. I just wanted to carry that over into the season. That's what I was able to do, and I was able to complete my goal of making it to Triple A. So when they informed you that they were bumping you up there for those final couple weeks of the season, knowing that meant you had achieved your goal, what was that emotion like for you, especially after missing all of last year? I mean, it was it was an awesome feeling. Cause I remember talking with my parents uh, a 
coming into this this past year, and I was like, yeah, I want to end up in AAA this year. Not not like technically make up for lost time last year, but you know, just just to be healthy all year. And if I know if I'm at my my healthy self, I know I can put up some really good numbers and uh, really just just full head of steam, just keep going through the minors. Throughout the first part of the year, the Blue Jays were kind of staggering you with a five-inning start followed by a two-inning start, 5-2, five, 5-2, two, five, two, five, two, just to help you build up innings after missing so much time last year. Uh, later in the year, they kind of turned you loose and you started putting together some consecutive starts, five and two-thirds, six innings, five, six, five and two-thirds, seven. How was it liberating when they turned you loose? Because I would imagine it would be frustrating sometimes you go out through two dominant innings and they yank you. Yeah, no, it was definitely... Uh... It was definitely something I had to, to struggle, not really struggle to deal with, but just knowing going into my two-inning start that uh, I'd be feeling really good after the second, you know, like just coming off K in the side or whatever, have two really strong innings and like pull me. So it was uh, kind of frustrating being the competitor I am, you know, wanting to go deep into games. But when they finally let me loose, it was, it was just like I was in Juco again. I was able to go deep into games and uh, – it was, it was an awesome feeling reaching to the seventh for the first time I broke through in AAA. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, throughout AA, again, you, you were able to get, you know, five and two-thirds, six innings. But that first AAA start at Rochester on August 20th, seven innings, three hits, no runs, no walks, three punch-outs. Uh, to have that success in your first start at the level, um, what was that like? And were you extra amped up for it? Yeah, I'd definitely say I was extra amped up for it because it, uh, it was also my birthday too. So I got called up and I was able to start my birthday. And uh, I had a bunch of family watching, and um, it was it was just a whirlwind of a night going through the going through each inning and uh, just trying to compete and get stronger throughout the outing and just know that I'm one step away from the big leagues and I'm able to put up these kind of numbers. And my first start in Triple it's just kind of my confidence just uh, just never wavered. For yeah, that to be your first birthday start. Would you say that uh, I should say for that to be your birthday start, first time you go seven innings as a professional? Would you characterize that as your best uh, pro outing to date for you? Yeah, I definitely say uh, for considering how long uh, how long of an outing it was, being my longest of my career. Uh, I wouldn't say it was my most dominant one, but uh, it was definitely my best uh, overall start in my career. I guess I should say, do you consider it the highlight of your career to date? Yeah, I consider it being in a, my first star AAA is pretty special. The Blue Jays, we talked about staggering your innings. You still finished with over 100 this year, uh, finished with uh, 101.2 after uh, last year throwing 20, uh, 20 in the third in the Fall League and inning in the third in Dunedin. So uh, still a bump of about 80 innings uh, last year to this year. You mentioned the grind of a long season, really the first time having to pitch through it. Uh, clearly you stayed strong to the end. Just how did you feel and, and how, what was it like managing that? You know, I was I was ready to keep going, and uh, I was hoping we would make the playoffs there in Buffalo. But uh, unfortunately, we came short. So I was I was looking forward to those couple extra postseason starts just to add to my innings total, just to get that up there. Because that was the main goal, man. I just want to get my innings up as high as I could, so I knew I wouldn't have to uh, necessarily deal with the innings limit uh, this year coming up. But uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was it was great to have that last season. 
as your stock kind of rose, you started rising higher and higher levels. People started talking about you more and more. Did you notice any changes where more interview requests, more autograph hounds? Did, did you notice some things changing about how people were uh, approaching you? Uh, no, not really. I try not to think too much into it. You know, there's uh, we have a lot of good guys in our organization on each team. So we have a lot of people wanting uh, our autographs, you know. So we had a, a lot of high-profile guys that, I was able to play with, so I never felt like I was I was sticking out by by any sorts, which is a good thing. It's been two years since you were drafted. How would you say you've changed or grown as a pitcher the most in those two years since joining the Blue Jays organization? Uh, I'd say that I've grown as a pitcher in the sense of having more than just one elite pitch. Uh, like when I got drafted, I was relying on my fastball heavy because that was my best pitch, and my secondaries were kind of fringy. But now I got at least three solid off-speed pitches, and my slider and changeup, my curveball is coming along. And uh, this next year is going to be—I'm uh, really looking forward to it because I know I'm just going to keep getting better, like I have been the past uh, uh, three years, I should say, um, and just keep that momentum going forward. Yeah, with your slider and changeup taking steps forward, do you see it as more of a you know testament to just throwing them more and growing more confident? Or did you have to do some work to change your grip, do some things to change the pitch characteristics? It's definitely throwing in them a lot helps you develop them, but also find out that good grip that that works best for you is what I was uh, working with this year and uh, in spring training. I really found some grips that I really like, and I just rolled with them this year and uh, um, didn't want to didn't really want to change it up because I was having success with. What change? What grips did you go to? Uh, I switched my uh, change of grip up. I was in a trip so fourteen, uh, but I switched up kind of like a, uh, I don't know, what, like a Fulcan change up where it comes off the middle of my two uh, fingers. They're kind of spread out. Uh, it's easier to show than to say, but uh, I definitely, definitely killed spin on it, and I was able to create more depth and a lot more swing and misses. Seeing that, you know, once once it plays, obviously you're doing grip work, you're throwing bullpen sessions, but to go out and see it play in games was a little bit like a, whoa, all right. Yeah, no, it was definitely cool. Starting high, my changeup was really good, and uh, obviously my slider has been pretty good. They both uh, get swing and misses, but it felt like whenever I was high in double A, it was a great weapon for me to have in my changeup, especially against lefties. And obviously, you know, developing those pitches helped you continue to vault up the minors, and now you find yourself on the cusp of the majors. Uh, Nate, when you kind of look back at the journey you've been on, going from Florida International, you know, a mid-major in the bullpen, to junior college, becoming a first-round pick, going through the injury, and now you look up and find yourself one of the top starting pitching prospects in all of baseball. Is it surreal? I mean, how do you kind of characterize, you know, everything you've been through these last four or five years? You know, it's just it's just cool to see that all my hard work is beginning to pay off. You know, it's uh, uh, I may get injured or I may uh, get some setbacks, but it's never gonna waver my work ethic and uh, my drive to be uh, the best. And uh, I think that's just a tribute to the success I've had. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to seeing your continued success, and uh, hopefully, uh, see you in the majors next year. Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Once again, that was Nate Pearson of the Toronto Blue Jays, one of the top-ranked pitching prospects in baseball, and really uh, an incredible rise to watch the last few years. Uh, the world at large got to see him in the Futures game this past summer and the Fall Stars game last fall, and saw his ability to run it up over 100 miles an hour and really dominate opponents. Uh, I know Toronto Blue Jays fans are certainly excited to see him, and we in the wider baseball world are certainly looking forward to seeing what he can do in the coming years against big league hitters. This has been another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on, we'd love to hear from you. And we look forward to bringing you more podcasts to come. We have a top 10 team podcast continuing to roll out throughout the winter. And you can be sure we'll be discussing all the upcoming offseason moves in store. Once again, for Nate Pearson, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.